Book Six, Chapter Forty of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Six, Chapter Forty. A long street of warehouses, and at the end of it the horses slackened. I saw the president of the club yesterday," said Flaxman, looking out. "He's an old friend of mine, a most intelligent fanatic. Met him on a mansion house fund committee last winter. He promised we should be looked after, but we should only get back seats, and you'll have to put up with the smoking. They don't want ladies, and we should only be there on sufferance. The carriage stopped. Mr. Flaxman guided his charges with some difficulty through the crowd about the steps, who inspected them and their vehicle with a frank and not over friendly curiosity. At the door, they found a man who had been sent to look for them, and were immediately taken possession of. He ushered them into the back of a large bare hall glaringly lit, lined with white brick, and hung at intervals with political portraits and a few cheap engravings of famous men, Jesus of Nazareth taking his turn with Buddha, Socrates, Moses, Shakespeare, and Paul of Tarsus. "'Can't put you any further, I'm afraid,' said their guide, with a shrug of the shoulders. "'The committee don't like strangers coming, and Mr. Collett, he got all over the coals for letting you in this evening.' It was a new position for Lady Charlotte to be anywhere on sufferance. However, in the presence of three hundred smoking men, who might all of them be political assassins in disguise for anything she knew, she accepted her fate with meekness, and she and Rose settled themselves into their back seat under a rough sort of gallery, glad of their veils, and nearly blinded with the smoke. The hall was nearly full, and Mr. Flaxman looked curiously round upon its occupants. The majority of them were clearly artisans, a spare, stooping, sharp-featured race. Here and there were a knot of stalwart dock labourers, strongly marked out in physique from the watchmakers and the potters, or an occasional seaman out of work, ship-steward, boatswain, or what not, generally bronzed, quick-eyed, and comely, save where the film of excess had already deadened colour and expression. Almost every one had a pot of beer before him, standing on long wooden flaps attached to the benches. The room was full of noise, coming apparently from the farther end, where some political bravo seemed to be provoking his neighbours. In their own vicinity the men scattered about were for the most part tugging silently at their pipes, alternately eyeing the clock and the newcomers. There was a stir of feet round the door. "'There he is,' said Mr. Flaxman, craning round to see, and Robert entered. He started as he saw them, flashed a smile to Rose, shook his head at Mr. Flaxman, and passed up the room. "'He looks pale and nervous,' said Lady Charlotte grimly, pouncing at once on the unpromising side of things. "'If he breaks down, are you prepared, Hugh, to play Elisha?' Flaxman was far too much interested in the beginnings of the performance to answer. Robert was standing forward on the platform, the chairman of the meeting at his side, members of the committee sitting behind on either hand. A good many men put down their pipes, and the hubbub of talk ceased. Others smoked on stolidly. The chairman introduced the lecturer. The subject of the address would be, as they already knew, the claim of Jesus upon modern life. It was not very likely, he imagined, that Mr. Ellesmere's opinions would square with those dominant in the club. But whether or no, he claimed for him, as for everybody, a patient hearing, and the Englishman's privilege of fair play. The speaker, a cabinet-maker dressed in a decent brown suit, spoke with fluency, and at the same time with that accent of moderation and savoir-faire 
which some Englishmen in all classes have obviously inherited from centuries of government by discussion. Lady Charlotte, whose liberalism was the mere varnish of an essentially aristocratic temper, was conscious of a certain dismay at the culture of the democracy as the man sat down. Mr. Flaxman, glancing to the right, saw a group of men standing, and amongst them a slight, sharp-featured thread-paper of a man with a taller companion, whom he identified as the pair he had noticed on the night of the storytelling. The little gas-fitter was clearly all nervous fidget and expectation, the other large and gaunt in vigour, with a square and impassive face and close-shut lips that had a perpetual mocking twist in the corners, stood beside him like some clumsy modern version in a commoner clay of Goethe's spirit that denies. Robert came forward with a roll of papers in his hand. His first words were hardly audible. Rose felt her colour rising. Lady Charlotte glanced at her nephew. The standing group of men cried, "'Speak up!' The voice in the distance rose at once, braced by the touch of difficulty, and what it said came firmly down to them. In after-days Flaxman could not often be got to talk of the experience of this evening. When he did, he would generally say, briefly, that as an intellectual effort he had never been inclined to rank this first public utterance very high among Ellesmere's performances. The speaker's own emotion had stood somewhat in his way. A man argues better, perhaps, when he feels less. "'I have often heard him put his case, as I thought, more cogently in conversation,' Flaxman would say, though only to his most intimate friends. "'But what I never saw before or since was such an effect of personality as he produced that night. From that moment, at any rate, I loved him, and I understood his secret.' Elsmere began with a few words of courteous thanks to the club for the hearing they had promised him. Then he passed on to the occasion of his address, the vogue in the district of certain newspapers which, I understand, are specially relished and patronised by your association. And he laid down on a table beside him the copies of The Free Thinker and of Faith and Fools, which he had brought with him, and faced his audience again, his hands on his sides. Well, I am not here to-night to attack those newspapers. I want to reach your sympathies, if I can, in another way. If there is anybody here who takes pleasure in them, who thinks that such writing and such witticisms as he gets pervade to him in these sheets do really help the cause of truth and intellectual freedom, I shall not attack his position from the front. I shall try to undermine it. I shall aim at rousing in him such a state of feeling as may suddenly convince him that what is injured by writing of this sort is not the orthodox Christian, or the Church, or Jesus of Nazareth, but always, and inevitably, the man who writes it and the man who loves it. His mind is possessed of an inflaming and hateful image, which drives him to mockery and violence. I want to replace it, if I can, by one of calm, of beauty and tenderness, which may drive him to humility and sympathy. And this, indeed, is the only way in which opinion is ever really altered, by the substitution of one mental picture for another. But in the first place, resumed the speaker, after a moment's pause, changing his note a little. A word about myself. I am not here to-night quite in the position of the casual stranger coming down to your district for the first time. As some of you know, I am endeavouring to make what is practically a settlement among you, asking you working men to teach me, if you will, what you have to teach as to the wants and prospects of your order, and offering you in return whatever there is in me which may be worth your taking. 
Well, I imagine I should look at a man who preferred a claim of that sort with some closeness. You may well ask me for antecedents, and I should like, if I may, to give them to you very shortly. Well, then, though I came down to this place under the wing of Mr. Edwards, some cheery, who is so greatly liked and respected here, I am not a Unitarian, nor am I an English churchman. A year ago I was the vicar of an English country parish, where I should have been proud, so far as personal happiness went, to spend my life. Last autumn I left it, and resigned my orders, because I could no longer accept the creed of the English church. Unconsciously the thin, dignified figure drew itself up. The voice took a certain dryness. All this was distasteful, but the orator's instinct was imperious. As he spoke, about a score of pipes which had been till now active in Flaxman's neighbourhood went down. The silence in the room became suddenly of a perceptibly different quality. Since then I have joined no other religious association, but it is not, God forbid, because there is nothing left me to believe, but because in this transition England it is well for a man who has broken with the old things to be very patient. No good can come of forcing opinion or agreement prematurely. A generation, nay more, may have to spend itself in mere waiting and preparing for those new leaders and those new forms of corporate action which any great revolution of opinion, such as that we are now living through, has always produced in the past, and will, we are justified in believing, produce again. But the hour and the men will come, and they also serve who only stand and wait. Voice and look had kindled into fire. Consciousness of his audience was passing from him. The world of ideas was growing clearer. So much, then, for personalities of one sort. There are some of another, however, which I must touch upon for a moment. I am to speak to you tonight of the Jesus of history, but not only as an historian. History is good, but religion is better. And if Jesus of Nazareth concerned me, and, in my belief, concerned you only as an historical figure, I should not be here tonight. But if I am to talk religion to you, and I have begun by telling you I am not this, not that, it seems to me that for mere clearness' sake, for the sake of that round and whole image of thought which I want to present to you, you must let me run through a preliminary confession of faith, as short and simple as I can make it. You must let me describe certain views of the universe and of man's place in it, which make the framework, as it were, into which I shall ask you to fit the picture of Jesus which will come after. Robert stood a moment, considering. An instant's nervousness, a momentary sign of self-consciousness, would have broken the spell and set the room against him. He showed neither. "'My friends,' he said at last, speaking to the crowded benches of London workmen, with the same plimplicity he would have used towards his boys at Muirwell, "'the man who is addressing you to-night believes in God and in conscience, which is God's witness to the soul, and in experience, which is at once the record and the instrument of man's education at God's hands. He places his whole trust, for life and death, in God the Father Almighty, in that force at the root of things which is revealed to us whenever a man helps his neighbour, or a mother denies herself for her child, whenever a soldier dies without a murmur for his country, or a sailor puts out in the darkness to rescue the perishing, whenever a workman throws mind and conscience into his work, or a statesman labours not for his own gain, but for that of the state. He believes in an eternal goodness, and an eternal mind, 
of which nature and man are the continuous and the only revelation. The room grew absolutely still, and into the silence there fell, one by one, the short, terse sentences in which the seer, the believer, struggled to express what God has been, is, and will ever be to the soul which trusts him. In them the whole effort of the speaker was really to restrain, to moderate, to depersonalize the voice of faith. But the intensity of each word burnt it into the hearer as it was spoken. Even Lady Charlotte turned a little pale. The tears stood in her eyes. Then, from the witness of God in the soul and in the history of man's moral life, Ellesmere turned to the glorification of experience, of that unvarying and rational order of the world which has been the appointed instrument of man's training since life and thought began. There, he said slowly, in the unbroken sequences of nature, in the physical histories of the world, in the long history of man, physical, intellectual, moral, there lies a revelation of God. There is no other, my friends. Then, while the room hung on his words, he entered on a brief exposition of the text, Miracles do not happen, restating Hume's old argument, and adding to it some of the most cogent of those modern arguments drawn from literature, from history, from the comparative study of religions and religious evidence, which were not practically at Hume's disposal, but which are now affecting the popular mind, as Hume's reasoning could never have affected it. We are now able to show how miracles, or the belief in it, which is the same thing, comes into being. The study of miracle in all nations and under all conditions yields everywhere the same results. Miracle may be the child of imagination, of love, nay, of a passionate sincerity, but invariably it lives with ignorance and is withered by knowledge. And then, with lightning unexpectedness, he turned upon his audience as though the ardent soul reacted at once against a strain of mere negation. But do not let yourselves imagine for an instant that, because in a rational view of history there is no place for a resurrection and ascension, therefore you may profitably allow yourself a mean and miserable mirth of this sort over the past. And his outstretched hand struck the newspapers beside him with a passion. Do not imagine for an instant that what is binding, adorable, beautiful in that past is done away with when miracle is given up. No, thank God. We still live by admiration, hope, and love. God only draws closer. Great men become greater. Human life more wonderful as miracle disappears. Woe to you if you cannot see it. It is the testing truth of our day. And besides, do you suppose that mere violence, mere invective, and savage mockery ever accomplished anything? Nay, what is more to the point, ever destroyed anything in human history? No, an idea cannot be killed from without. It can only be supplanted, transformed by another idea, and that one of equal virtue and magic. Strange paradox. In the moral world you cannot pull down except by gentleness. You cannot revolutionize except by sympathy. Jesus only superseded Judaism by absorbing and recreating all that was best in it. There are no inexplicable gaps and breaks in the story of humanity. The religion of today, with all its faults and mistakes, will go on unshaken, so long as there is nothing else of equal loveliness and potency to put in its place. The Jesus of the churches will remain paramount, 
so long as the man of today imagines himself dispensed by any increase of knowledge from loving the Jesus of history. But why, he will ask me, what does the Jesus of history matter to me? And so he was brought to the place of great men in the development of mankind, to the part played by the human story by those lives in which men have seen all their noblest thoughts of God, of duty, and of law embodied, realized before them with a shining and incomparable beauty. You think, because it is becoming plain to the modern eye that the ignorant love of his first followers wreathed his life in legend, that therefore you can escape from Jesus of Nazareth, you can put him aside as though he had never been. Folly! Do what you will, you cannot escape him. His life and death underlie our institutions as the alphabet underlies our literature. Just as the lives of Buddha and of Mohammed are wrought ineffaceably into the civilizations of Africa and Asia, so the life of Jesus is wrought ineffaceably into the higher civilization, the nobler social conceptions of Europe. It is wrought into your being and into mine. We are what we are tonight as Englishmen and as citizens, largely because a Galilean peasant was born and grew to manhood and preached and loved and died. And you think that a fact so tremendous can be just scoffed away, that we can get rid of it and of our share in it by a ribald paragraph and a caricature. No. Your hatred and your ridicule are parlous. And thank God they are parlous. There is no wanton waste in the moral world any more than in the material. There is only fruitful change and beneficent transformation. Granted that the true story of Jesus of Nazareth was from the beginning obscured by error and mistake. Granted that those errors and mistakes which were once the strength of Christianity are now its weakness, and by the slow march and sentence of time are now threatening, unless we can clear them away, to lessen the hold of Jesus on the love and remembrance of men. What then? The fact is merely a call to you and me, who recognise it, to go back to the roots of things, to reconceive the Christ, to bring him afresh into our lives, to make the life so freely given for man minister again in new ways to man's new needs. Every great religion is, in truth, a concentration of great ideas, capable, as all ideas are, of infinite expansion and adaptation. And woe to our human weakness if it loose its hold one instant before it must on any one of those rare and precious possessions which have helped it in the past, and may again inspire it in the future. To reconceive the Christ. It is the special task of our age, though in some sort and degree it has been the ever-recurring task of Europe since the beginning. He paused, and then very simply, and so as to be understood by those who heard him, he gave a rapid sketch of that great operation worked by the best intellect of Europe during the last half-century, broadly speaking, on the facts and documents of primitive Christianity. From all sides, and by the help of every conceivable instrument, those facts have been investigated, and now at last the great result, the revivified, reconceived truth, seems ready to emerge. Much may still be known, much can never be known, but if we will we may now discern the true features of Jesus of Nazareth, as no generation but our own has been able to discern them, since those who have seen and handled passed away. Let me try, however feebly, and draw it afresh for you, 
that life of lives, that story of stories, as the labour of our own age in particular has patiently revealed it to us. Come back with me through the centuries. Let us try and see the Christ of Galilee and the Christ of Jerusalem as he was, before a credulous love and Jewish tradition and Greek subtlety had at once dimmed and glorified the truth. Ha! Do what we will, it is so scanty and poor, this knowledge of ours, compared with all that we yearn to know. But such as it is, let me, very humbly and very tentatively, endeavour to put it before you. At this point, Flaxman's attention was suddenly distracted by a stir round the door of entrance on his left hand. Looking round, he saw a ritualist priest in cassock and cloak, disputing in hurried undertones with the men about the door. At last he gained his point, apparently, for the men, with half-angry, half-quizzing looks at each other, allowed him to come in, and he found a seat. Flaxman was greatly struck by the face, by its ascetic beauty, the stern and yet delicate whiteness and emaciation of it. He sat with both hands resting on the stick he held in front of him, intently listening, the perspiration of physical weakness on his brow and round his finely curved mouth. Clearly he could hardly see the lecturer, for the room had become inconveniently crowded, and the men about him were mostly standing. "'One of the St. Wilfrid's priests, I suppose,' Flaxman said to himself. "'What on earth is he doing, dans cette galère? Are we to have a disputation? That would be dramatic.' He had no attention, however, to spare, and the intruder was promptly forgotten. When he turned back to the platform, he found that Robert, with Mackay's help, had hung on a screen to his right four or five large drawings of Nazareth, of the lake of Gennesaret, of Jerusalem, and the temple of Herod, of the ruins of that synagogue on the probable site of Capernaum, in which conceivably Jesus may have stood. They were bold and striking, and filled the bare hall at once with suggestions of the East. He used them often at Meobel. Then, adopting a somewhat different tone, he plunged into the life of Jesus. He brought to it all his trained historical power, all his story-telling faculty, all his sympathy with the needs of feeling. And bit by bit, as the quick, nervous sentences issued and struck, each like the touch of a chisel, the majestic figure emerged, set against its natural background, instinct with some fraction at least of the magic of reality, most human, most persuasive, most tragic. He brought out the great words of the new faith, to which, whatever may be their literal origin, Jesus, and Jesus only, gave currency an immortal force. He dwelt on the magic, the permanence, the expansiveness of the young Nazarene's central conception, the spiritualized, universalized kingdom of God. Elsmer's thought, indeed, knew nothing of a perfect man, as he knew nothing of an incarnate God. He shrank from nothing that he believed true, but every limitation, every reserve he allowed himself, did but make the whole more poignantly real, and the claim of Jesus more penetrating. The world has grown since Jesus preached in Galilee and Judea. We cannot learn the whole of God's lesson from him now, nay, we could not then. But all that is most essential to man, all that saves the soul, all that purifies the heart, that he has still for you and me, as he had it for the men and women of his own time. Then he came to the last scenes. His voice sank a little, his notes dropped from his hand, and the silence grew more oppressive. The dramatic force, the tender passionate insight, 
the fearless modernness with which the story was told made it almost unbearable. Those listening saw the trial, the streets of Jerusalem, that desolate place outside the northern gate. They were spectators of the torture, they heard the last cry. No one present had ever so seen, so heard before. Rose had hidden her face. Flaxman, for the first time, forgot to watch the audience. The men had forgotten each other, and for the first time that night, in many a cold, embittered heart, there was born that love of the Son of Man which Nathaniel felt, and John, and Mary of Bethany, and which has in it now, as then, the promise of the future. He laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock, and he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. The ashes of Jesus of Nazareth mingled with the earth of Palestine. Far hence he lies in the lawn Syrian town, and on his grave with shining eyes the Syrian stars look down. He stopped. The melancholy cadence of the verse died away. Then a gleam broke over the pale, exhausted face, a gleam of extraordinary sweetness. And in the days and weeks that followed the devout and passionate fancy of a few mourning Galileans begat the exquisite fable of the resurrection. How natural, and amid all its falseness, how true is that naive and contradictory story! The rapidity with which it spread is a measure of many things. It is above all a measure of the greatness of Jesus, of the force with which he had drawn to himself the hearts and imaginations of men. And now, my friends, what of all this? If these things I have been saying to you are true, what is the upshot of them for you and me? Simply this, as I conceive it, that instead of wasting your time and degrading your souls by indulgence in such grime as this, and he pointed to the newspapers, it is your urgent business, and mine, at this moment, to do our very utmost to bring this life of Jesus, our precious, invaluable possession as a people, back into some real and cogent relation with our modern lives and beliefs and hopes. Do not answer me that such an effort is a mere dream and futility, conceived in the vague, apart from reality. The men must have something to worship, and that if they cannot worship Jesus they will not trouble to love him. Is the world desolate, with God still in it, and does it rest merely with us to love or not to love? Love and revere something we must, if we are to be men and not beasts. At all times and in all nations, as I have tried to show you, man has helped himself by the constant and passionate memory of those great ones of his race who have spoken to him most audibly of God and of his eternal hope. And for us Europeans and Englishmen, as I have also tried to show you, history and inheritance have decided. If we turn away from the true Jesus of Nazareth because he has been disfigured and misrepresented by the churches, we turn away from that in which our weak wills and desponding souls are meant to find their most obvious and natural help and inspiration, from that symbol of the divine which of necessity means most to us. No, give him back your hearts. Be ashamed that you have ever forgotten your debt to him. Let combination and brotherhood do for the newer and simpler faith which they did once for the old. Let them give it a practical shape, a practical grip on human life. Then we too shall have our Easter. We too shall have the right to say, He is not here, He is risen. Not here in legend, in miracle, in the beautiful outworn forms and crystallizations of older thought. He is risen, 
in a wiser reverence and a more reasonable love. Risen in new forms of social help, inspired by his memory, called afresh by his name. Risen, if you and your children will it, in a church or company of the faithful, over the gates of which two sayings of man's past, into which man's present has breathed new meanings, shall be written. In thee, O Eternal, have I put my trust, and this do in remembrance of me. The rest was soon over. The audience woke from the trance in which it had been held with a sudden burst of talk and movement. In the midst of it, and as the majority of the audience were filing out into the adjoining rooms, the gasfitter's tall companion, Andrews, mounted the platform, while the gasfit himself, with an impatient shrug, pushed his way into the outgoing crowd. Andrews went slowly and deliberately to work, dealing out his long, cantankerous sentences with a natal sang-froid which seemed to change in a moment the whole aspect and temperature of things. He remarked that Mr. Ellesmere had talked of what great scholars had done to clear up this matter of Christ and Christianity. Well, he was free to maintain that old Tom Paine was as good a scholar as any of them, and most of them in that hall knew what he thought about it. Tom Paine hadn't anything to say against Jesus Christ, and he hadn't. He was a workman and a fine sort of man, and if he'd been alive now, he'd have been a socialist, as most of us are, and he'd have made it hot for the rich loafers and the sweaters and the middlemen, as we'd like to make it hot for them. But as for those people who got up the church, mythologists, Tom Paine called them, and the miracles, and made an uncommonly good thing out of it, pecuniarily speaking, he didn't see what they got to do with keeping up or mending or preserving their precious bit of work. The world have found them out, and serve them right. And he wound up with a fierce denunciation of priests, not without a harsh savour and eloquence, which was much clapped by the small knot of workmen amongst whom he had been standing. Then there followed a socialist, an eager, ugly, black-bearded little fellow, who preached the absolute necessity of doing without any cultus whatsoever, through scorn on both the Christians and the positivists, for refusing so to deny themselves, and appealed earnestly to his group of hearers to help in bringing religion back from heaven to earth where it belongs. Mr. Ellesmere's new church, if he ever got it, would only be a fresh instrument in the hands of the bourgeoisie. And when the people have got their rights and brought down the capitalists, they're not going to be such fools as to put their necks under the heels of what were called the educated classes. The people who wrote the newspapers Mr. Ellesmere objected to knew quite enough for the working man, and people should not be too smooth-spoken. What the working class wanted beyond everything just now was grit. A few other short speeches followed, mostly of the common secularist type, in defence of the newspapers attacked. But the defence, on the whole, was shuffling and curiously half-hearted. Robert, sitting by with his head on his hand, felt that there, at any rate, his onslaught had told. He said a few words in reply, in a low, husky voice, without a trace of his former passion, and the meeting broke up. The room had quickly filled when it was known that he was up again, and as he descended the steps of the platform, after shaking hands with the chairman, the hundreds present broke into a sudden burst of cheering. Lady Charlotte pressed forward to him through the crowd, offering to take him home. "'Come with us, Mr. Ellesmere. You look like a ghost.' But he shook his head, smiling. "'No, thank you, Lady Charlotte. I must have some air.' And he took her out on his arm, while Flaxman followed with Rose. It once occurred to Flaxman to look round for the priest he had seen come in. 
but there was no signs of him. "'I had an idea he would have spoken,' he thought. "'Just as well, perhaps. We should have had a row.' Lady Charlotte threw herself back in the carriage as they drove off, with a long breath, and the inward reflection, "'So his wife wouldn't come and hear him. Must be a woman with a character, that. A Strafford in petticoats.' Robert turned up the street to the city, the tall, slight figure seeming to shrink together as he walked. After his passionate effort, indescribable depression had overtaken him. "'Words, words,' he said to himself, striking out his hands in a kind of feverish protest as he strode along, against his own powerlessness, against that weight of the present and the actual which seems to the enthusiast alternately light as air or heavy as the mass of Etna on the breast of Enceladus. Suddenly, at the corner of a street, a man's figure in a long black robe stopped him and laid a hand on his arm. "'Newcombe!' cried Robert, standing still. "'I was there,' said the other, bending forward and looking close into his eyes. "'I heard almost all. I went to confront, to denounce you.' By the light of a lamp not far off, Robert caught the attenuated whiteness and sharpness of the well-known face, to which weeks of fasting and mystical excitement had given a kind of unearthly remoteness. He gathered himself together with an inward groan. He felt as though there were no force in him at that moment wherewith to meet reproaches, to beat down fanaticism. The pressure on nerve and strength seemed unbearable. Newcombe, watching him with eagle eye, saw the sudden shrinking and hesitation. He had often in old days felt the same sense of power over the man who yet, in what seemed his weakness, had always escaped him in the end. I went to denounce, he continued, in a strange, tense voice, and the Lord refused it to me. He kept me watching for you here. These words are not mine, I speak. I waited patiently in that room till the Lord should deliver his enemy into my hand. My wrath was hot against the deserter that could not even desert in silence, hot against his dupes. Then suddenly words came to me. They have come to me before. They burn up the very heat and marrow in me. Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, and the Lord commandeth it not? There they were in my ears, written on the walls, the air. The hand dropped from Robert's arm. A dull look of defeat, of regret, darkened the gleaming eyes. They were standing in a quiet, deserted street, but through a side opening the lights, the noise, the turbulence of the open-air market came drifting to them through the rainy atmosphere which blurred and magnified everything. Ay, after days and nights in his most blessed sanctuary, Newcombe resumed slowly, I came by his commission, as I thought, to fight his battle with a traitor, and at the last moment his strength, which was in me, went from me. I sat there dumb. His hand was heavy upon me. His will be done. The voice sank. The priest drew his thin, shaking hand across his eyes, as though the awe of a mysterious struggle was still upon him. Then he turned again to Ellesmere, his face softening, radiating. Ellesmere, take the sign, the message. I thought it was given to me to declare the Lord's wrath. Instead, he sends you once more by me, even now, even fresh from this new defiance of his mercy, the tender offer of his grace. He lies at rest to-night, my brother. What sweetness in the low vibrating tones! After all the anguish! 
let me draw you down on your knees beside him. It is you, you who have helped to drive in the nails, to embitter the agony. It is you who in his loneliness have been robbing him of the souls that should be his. It is you who have been doing your utmost to make his cross and passion of no effect. Oh, let it break your heart to think of it. Watch by him to-night, my friend, my brother, and to-morrow let the risen Lord reclaim his own. Never had Robert seen any mortal face so persuasively beautiful. Never surely did saint or ascetic plead with a more penetrating gentleness. After the storm of those opening words, the change was magical. The tears stood in Ellesmere's eyes. But his quick insight, in spite of himself, divined the subtle, natural facts behind the outburst, the strained physical state, the irritable brain, all the consequences of a long defiance of physical and mental law. The priest repelled him. The man drew him like a magnet. "'What can I say to you, Newcombe?' he cried despairingly. "'Let me say nothing, dear old friend. I'm tired out, so I expect to you. I know what this week has been to you. Walk with me a little. Leave these great things alone. We cannot agree. Be content, God knows. Tell me about the old place and the people. I long for news of them.' A sort of shudder passed through his companion. Newcombe stood wrestling with himself. It was like the slow departure of a possessing force. Then he sombrely assented, and they turned towards the city. But his answers, as Robert questioned him, were sharp and mechanical, and presently it became evident that the demands of the ordinary talk to which Ellesmere rigorously held him were more than he could bear. As they reached St. Paul's, towering into the watery moonlight of the clouded sky, he stopped abruptly and said good-night. "'You came to me in the spirit of war,' said Robert, with some emotion, as he held his hand. "'Give me instead the grasp of peace.' The spell of his manner, his presence, prevailed at last. A melancholy quivering smile dawned on the priest's delicate lip. "'God bless you.' "'God restore you,' he said sadly, and was gone. End of Book 6, Chapter 40